tonight, we are going to start in Luke chapter 5, and we are going to end up talking about one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He comes up for a very, very short period of time in Luke chapter 19. His name is Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man, and that was one of the, the songs that my, my mom taught me when I was a kid, and it's just one of those things that's always stuck with me. And so uh, eventually we're going to get to Zacchaeus, but to lay some of the groundwork, we're going to start tonight in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. We'll read all the way down through 32, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive right in after that. Beginning in verse 27, it says, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Heavenly Father, as we gather together tonight to study your word, we pray that you would quiet and calm our hearts and our minds. Lord, that that all of the thoughts and the, the anxieties, the things that just threaten to race through our minds throughout the day. Lord, we pray that you would just... Clear all of that. Allow us to cast our cares upon you tonight to have that perfect peace that passes all understanding that would guard our hearts and our minds through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we would be able to to be set and focused upon your word and the things that you desire to speak and teach to our hearts in this place tonight. Lord, we do lift up to you all those that are within our body that are, are ailing in one way or another. Father, you know our hearts and our struggles. You know our situations the tribulations, the temptations, Lord, you know everything. And so we pray for, for this entire fellowship, for this entire body. Lord, we pray that, that you would heal, that you would comfort, that you would grant peace, Lord, that you would do whatever is necessary, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. And so we commit ourselves in this time unto you once again, and we ask and pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So... Luke chapter 5, verse 27, he starts here and he says, After these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, for us nowadays, a tax collector doesn't seem anywhere near as big of a deal as it was to them back in that time. And so Jesus is going out. He's already begun his ministry, and he's now selecting the disciples. These 12 men that, if you've ever heard of a man named Gail Irwin, he talks about not many mighty and it's an entire book that he, he goes through and he talks about all of the ways that God has used people that are definitely not what man would choose. I mean, they're not, we are not the people that, that if somebody were coming to look for the next CEO or the next great scientist, we oftentimes are not those people. And yet God chooses and God does amazing things through us. And so he goes through and he selects these 12 men and Levi was one of them. He was a tax collector. And he was actually sitting at the tax office. He was doing his business. He was doing the work that he had been chosen to do and that he had selected for his life. And it was something that was extremely looked down upon. And yet Jesus came and he ministered to him right where he was. He met him where he was. He didn't leave him there. He said, come follow me, pulled him out of where he was, but he ministered to him right where he was at. And then when, when the scribes and the Pharisees, when the holy rollers came and they said, what are you doing? Why are you, you fraternizing with all these people? Why are you hanging out with people that, that are sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus answered, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the calling of ministry that Jesus showed, the example that he gave to us, when he came the first time, was to go and to minister, to reach out to people, to, yes, preach repentance, but also to teach them to be disciples, to not leave them where they were, but to meet them where they are. And so the first question is, why did Jesus come the first time? In John chapter 3, we, we know John three sixteen, but going a little back into verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then we get to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so why did Jesus come the first time? He came to save the world. It says, for God did not send his son to condemn the world. There is going to be a time when Jesus comes back to rule and to reign, and he's going to come back as that righteous judge. But right now, the first time that he came, he came to be the Savior. He came to be our Lord. And so the world is headed straight for eternal damnation apart from God. For all of eternity, we know that, we understand that, hopefully, as, as children of God, hopefully all of us in this room are, we understand that without Jesus, that's where we were headed to, for eternal damnation, for it to spend eternity apart from God. And so Jesus came so that there would be an opportunity for us to be saved from the penalty of sin, which is that, but also, as we were talking about on Wednesday and also over the weekend, to be freed from the dominion that sin wants to have over us. When we are committing sins, when we are living in those things, the enemy and the world starts to to wear on us. It starts to drag us down. It starts to pull on us, and it begins to have dominion over us. And so Jesus came to free us from not only the penalty of sin, but from the, the tug of sin. So he came, not that we would be condemned, but that the world through him might be saved. In verse 31, we just saw it in Luke chapter 5. Jesus answered them and he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are sick. And so that is who Jesus came to minister to. And sin acts a lot like a virus. It's an easy thing for us to think about during COVID-19. Sin acts very, very similarly. It's always lurking around, just waiting to drag you down, just waiting to hit you. And you don't know where it's going to come from. You're, you're never fully prepared unless you have your eyes on Jesus. But you're, it's always lurking. It's always waiting to, to hit you. And once it hits, the symptoms just get worse and worse and worse until it either runs its course and it's totally ruined whatever's going on in our lives or until we get to the great physician, Jesus. And we return and we're restored, we're healed and brought into that rightness in fellowship, that rightness in relationship. And so what are we called to do in that vein? So understanding that that's what Jesus came to do the first time and that he has yet to come back for his church. So what are we called to do in the interim, in the meantime, between when he left and when he comes back, what are we called to do? We're called to fulfill that ministry. There are those today who believe that, <clears throat> that they're righteous, that they're holy, that, that they're just, that they, they've already completed everything that they need to do, that their responsibility is just to get closer to Jesus. And while that's a definitely a, an absolute certainty that we need to be doing that, there's more than just that. In Matthew 28, 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But then he has a command For the disciples, and it's the same thing for us. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the command there is to go out, to go forth, and then to make disciples. Not just to make converts, but to make disciples. And we've talked about this before that we need to be growing in our relationship with Jesus, but we need to be teaching others how to grow in their relationship as well. And that is what it is to make a disciple. And then he says to teach them in verse 20, to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so again, the exhortation is for us to learn the word of God. We need to know what God has commanded us to do so that then we can not only do it ourselves, but we can teach others how to do those things as well. And then he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, because he doesn't just send us out by ourselves. He goes along with us. In Acts 1 verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power. This is Jesus right before he ascended, speaking to the disciples. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we've been called to be witnesses. 
We've been called to go out and to be a living testimony. You know, there, there are people that, that have said, and there are memes about it now, nowadays, but the idea is that you need to go and you need to witness to people, and if necessary, use words. And the, the picture there is that our lives, the very way that we live our lives, should reflect Jesus, and it should show that there's a difference between the world and us. It should show that Jesus has made a change in us. It doesn't mean that we're perfected yet, but it means that there's a change, especially for those of us that, that have come to, to a different place in life where God has brought us just from the depths, just terrible, terrible places, things that, that we were an example of all the things that the world is and all the things the world has to offer, whether it's the whatever, just all the sins that are out there. And, and we, we used to enjoy those things. We used to enjoy those things so much. And we had friends that we would go and we would enjoy partaking in sin together. You know, whether it was alcohol, whether it was drugs, whether it was promiscuity, what, whatever it is, there were all of these things that we were before. And then if we drifted away from, from those friends, from those people, and then we got saved, and then this change happens, and then we don't see each other for 10, 15, 20 years, and then we, we randomly meet up again, and then they say, what happened to you? You're so different. You know, what, what is it? Like, what, what made that change? And then usually the first question is, Who, who'd you marry? Because it must have been that. And then, then gradually as the conversation continues, you get to that place where it was God. God changed me. You know, it wasn't me. It wasn't that it wasn't my wife or my husband. It wasn't my kids. It wasn't a job. It wasn't growing up. It was Jesus. Jesus changed me. And then people see that. They recognize that. And they know who we were. And they can see who we are now. And that's a testimony. It's a testament. It's a witness. And so he says, you should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in John 20, verse 21, it says, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. So we are being sent into the world. Jesus was sent into the world. As the father has sent him, he also sends us. And in verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And, and what he's saying here is not that we have the power to do those things. It is that we have the responsibility to proclaim those things. We need to let people know that there is a way to receive the forgiveness of sins and that there is only one way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father except through him. So that the way to receive forgiveness of sins is Jesus Christ, is committing ourselves, committing our lives, giving ourselves over to him that he would have complete and total control. That is how we receive the forgiveness of sins. And there is no other way. It's not, as we've talked about the last couple of times that we've gathered together, it's not about weighing the good versus the bad. It's not about how many good things I've done or how many church services I've attended or how many ministries I've helped out or how much money I've given or how much time I've given or all the good deeds in my life. It's not about any of those things. It's not about any of those things. Our, our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. So it's not about any of those things that gets us forgiveness. It's not any of those things that gets us into heaven. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we see here that we have this responsibility. And, and in a sense, to use that example of the virus, we have that responsibility to be out on the front lines, to be a first responder, if you will. Most of the time, the ill would seek out the physician. But what happens when there's a medical emergency? When there's a medical emergency, the first responders go out and they bring them to the doctor, to the physician. And so we are those first responders. We're called to go out and to bring those who are dying in their sins to Jesus. We are not called to go and to heal them. We're not called to go and to change their hearts because we don't have that power. We are called to go and to be faithful, to bring them to Jesus. And then once they come to Jesus, we're to teach and to grow each other in the knowledge of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we studied this weekend, we are those living stones being built together as a living spiritual house. And so we are called to grow and to make disciples so that they would grow as well. 
but we go and we meet them where they are. Interestingly enough, though, despite all of the power and the authority and the responsibility that Jesus has left for us, including giving us the empowering of his Holy Spirit, one thing that he definitely left out, he notably did not give us the authority to pick and choose who should be cared for. He did not give us the opportunity, the responsibility, or the authority to pick and choose who should be cared for. We go out and we find the sinners just like us who need spiritual healing, regardless of where they are, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what they say or how they sound, regardless of what the sin is that they are battling, we go out and we find sinners just like us and we bring them to Jesus. Jesus showed us the example to follow and it is an example that knows no bounds because his love knows no bounds. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we are only conquerors because of the love, mercy, grace, and power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not because we in and of ourselves are conquerors. It's because of the love of Jesus, the mercy, the grace, and the power of our Lord and Savior. And then in verse 38, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate. Once we have come to that place, come to that saving knowledge, when we have committed ourselves to him, when we have given our lives over to him, there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is the love that we go and we share and we take to those other sinners who have yet to partake of it. That is the thing that we go out and we give. Sometimes we get so caught up in wanting to right all the wrongs of the world. Instead of focusing on writing the one thing that we have been given the opportunity to make right in someone else's life. And that is their lack of knowing Jesus. That's the one responsibility that we have for every single non-believer out in the world is to let them know Jesus. You know, it's not my responsibility to go out and to change someone's heart. It's not my responsibility to go out and change a non-believer's life, to change their mind. It's not my job and it's not my words or my authority or even my own love that's going to change them. My my limits, my limitations keep me from being able to make that kind of an impact in somebody else's life. There is nothing that I can do in and of myself to change that person's heart, to change their life. It is only the love of God. It's the power of God by the Holy Spirit that makes that change. It's the same thing that that made the transformation in us and continues day by day to draw us closer to Jesus. And that is what we take to people. We don't take the rules and the regulations. We don't go out and tell them, look, you need to come to church on this day and this time. You need to give this much money to the church. You need to be at this many Bible studies. You need to come and you need to to stop doing this in your life. You need to stop doing that in your life. Because when we go and we talk to a non-believer and we tell them all of the rules and the regulations, what, what is their first, what would your first response be? If there's no tug, if there's no change in your heart, I mean, I think that most of us can, can attest to this, that there are times when we, when we drift, when we deviate from the center of God's will, when our relationship with Jesus is not where it needs to be. There are times that the rules and the regulations, that the, the challenges that God has set for us in his word, they become burdensome. Not because that's what it's supposed to be, but because we allowed it to be that way because our relationship is not as right as it should be. So if we having partaken of this grace, having partaken of this love that knows no bounds, having been empowered by the Holy Spirit, having been given this gift and this opportunity to be able to to call upon the Father at every moment of every day, if these things can become burdensome for us, if our relationship with Jesus isn't right, what do you think the response of the world is going to be? So we meet them where they're at and we share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, that there is a need for a savior because they are in their sins, but changing someone on the outside isn't going to change them on the inside. Changing someone on the outside is not going to do the work 
that God needs to have completed on the inside. And so that gets us to the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 9, it says, Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And so Jesus is speaking this parable about those who didn't want to go and to reach anyone that was below their level. These are the men and the women who trust in themselves that they are righteous and they look down on everyone that they don't feel has achieved or attained their level. And so he tells them two men went up to the temple. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now Pharisees were, were considered to be terrible, terrible people by all of the, the non-religious people. Because they, they were always so perfect, so full of themselves, so just condemning. That they would walk around and just the way that they acted made you feel like less of a person. And yet on the other side, you had tax collectors who they felt, most people felt the same way about them that the Pharisees felt about most normal people. Because the tax collectors were considered even worse than sinners. So in Rome, the way that things were set up is it was a little bit different back then. So what what would happen is that people would bid on the opportunity to be the tax collector for a particular region. Whether it was a city, whether it was a larger area, they would place a bid and they would tell the government, the Roman government, we will collect this much and deliver it to you for, for the year, for the month, whatever it was, whatever the time frame was. And whatever the highest bid was, that would be the individual that the government would choose to be the tax collector. So if you said you could get $1,000 from this area and somebody else came along and said they could get 2000 then they would give it to the person that said they could get 2000 And then it was up to that guy to go and to collect $2,000 from that whole area however he wanted to do it. And the way that the tax collector would then make his own money is that he would charge on top of that. And some of them would charge well beyond whatever the bid was that they had placed. So for example, if they were trying to get $2,000, maybe they would go out and they would collect $10,000. So they would take $8,000 and keep it for themselves and they would give the government too. And the people knew this was going on. They knew exactly how all of this worked. And so these guys were even worse. They were worse than sinners. And so these two men go, the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. And he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And he goes through and talks about all the sins that that he sees in other people's lives. And then the lowest of the low, he says, or even as this tax collector. Not only that, but I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I come to church. I pray so that other people can see me and hear me. I give of the money that I have, and I I give a very specific, specified amount, and I do it religiously. I do it faithfully. And that's what it was. It was religion for these guys. And there are those today who are in the same place, that that we trust in our own righteousness. Sometimes it's even even possible for us to, to get to that place without even realizing it, because it's almost more of forgetting where we came from and the work that God has already completed as we work towards the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Obviously, if we're doing this correctly, living as children of God, spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, spending time growing in our relationship with Jesus, then we are moving closer to the righteousness of Jesus every day. But we're still not there. None of us has gotten to that place where, where we're perfect. I I firmly believe that if you ever get to that place, that God will take you home because there's nothing left that he can do in you or through you here. It's, that's, you know, I don't know why, but that's, that's just how I think about it. It makes it very, very plain to me is that, that if I could ever get to that place, then it would be one of those harpazo events where, you know, you would just be there and you'd be in prayer with Jesus and, and you would just be taken. And you would not be here anymore. You would be in heaven for all of eternity. And so we're not perfect. We haven't gotten to that place yet. 
And we can't forget how far God has brought us because when we forget about that, it becomes so easy for us to look down on other people, to trust in our own righteousness, to make it seem as if we are now so much better than anyone else. We are not even better than anybody out in the world. Just because we're inside a church, just because we know Jesus, that doesn't make us better. It just makes us more blessed. It makes us more blessed. There go I, but by the grace of God. It's so true. There is nothing, no sin known to man that any of us is incapable of committing. There's not a single sin out there, no matter how terrible the sin might be in your mind right now, no matter how much you think there's absolutely no way possible that I could ever fall that far, that I would commit that kind of a sin. I guarantee you that it is within your ability, within the ability of your own heart and your own mind to do that. There is not a single sin that any of us is incapable of committing. And we need to remember that because let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. To know that as soon as we feel like we've got it down, that we we know what we're doing, that we don't need to spend as much time with Jesus, that's when we fail. That's when we fall. And that's when we drag others down with us. That's also when we are unable to be used to the fullest extent for the kingdom of God. So we can't forget how far God has brought us, how great a work he has done. And we need to recognize that that our prayers have to reflect the same thing. Do our prayers reflect our humility and our thankfulness? Or do they reflect our great self-interest and self-worth? The tax collector in verse 13, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And that is one of those things that, that, that for me is so important. That verse, verse 13, is so important to my life. And when I lose sight of that verse, it messes me up so badly. Because I need to remember that that is who I am. That is who I am. That is not who I am in Christ. That is who I am without Christ. Standing afar off, I shouldn't even be able to raise my eyes to heaven. And I should have to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because that is still my tendency. That is my heart. That is is my my being, that's who I am. I am a sinner and I need to recognize that so that I can confess that so that I can ask that God would grant to me his power, his authority, his ability, his wisdom, his guidance, his direction, his everything so that I don't keep coming back to the same place that we would never lose sight of this attitude in our lives because it's hard to stay, to stay humble as a Christian. It is hard to stay humble as a Christian. Let's be honest. You know, we're, we're family here. We, let's be honest. It is hard for us to stay humble as Christians. We like to think about all the good things that we've done. We like to be able to compare to those around us. For those of you that are married, oftentimes that is the easiest comparison for us to fall into. We like to compare ourselves to our spouse. Well, I spent more time in the Word than my spouse did today. Or, you know what, my spouse really messed up this week with whatever it was, and I didn't have that struggle. Or, you know what, they didn't want to come to church, but I was really excited, and I got up, and I was ready to go to church. Or, I yelled at the kids, but she really yelled at the kids. And it's this constant, well, one-upmanship of, well, I'm better than, I'm better than, and yet we lose sight of Jesus. We lose sight of Jesus. So it's hard for us to stay humble as Christians. You know, when we hear that a a pastor has fallen, one of the first things that that goes through our minds is not not what it should be. It's usually one of those, how could they? They're supposed to be, and then whatever we think that they're supposed to be. There was a a very, very famous pastor this last week or the week before that, that was forced to resign because of moral failures. And we don't, don't even want to get into the theology of their church and all that other stuff. But suffice to say that he was a famous pastor. And he had to step down because of moral failure. 
And so many people inside the body of Christ just jumped on the world's bandwagon and said, I knew it. I knew it about him. I knew there was something wrong. I knew he didn't love Jesus. I knew he didn't know, know the, the Jesus that I know. I knew he didn't have the relationship with Jesus that he was supposed to. And he, he, even when I would listen to him teach, you know, I, I just knew, I knew, I knew, I knew. What did you really know? What do any of us really know about anybody else's walk? You know, in the last couple of weeks when we've been talking about elections and different things and different people, different political candidates and, and going through and talking about, well, I voted for this person because they're morally more upright. Really? How do you know? Did you spend time with them? Did, do you know somebody that spent time with them? Well, brother, I, I, show me the, the, the fruits of repentance in their life. Show me the fruits of repentance in your life. I, I don't know. I don't know your life. I don't know anybody else's life. I have enough, enough of a hard time keeping track of my own faults. And then to add on top of that, trying to keep track of my kids' faults. That's, I mean, between, between the five of us, that's enough. We're... Like, I, I don't even have time to keep track of my wife's faults. So, like, there's, there's just not enough time in the day. But we get on our high horse, our spiritual high horse, and, and we are so righteous. And thank God that I'm not like that person. Thank God. Sometimes we even got to this place, too. Thank God that I go to a church that's not like that church. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I'm blessed. I'm thankful that, that I, I've grown up in this church. But that doesn't mean that this church is miles ahead of any other church. I mean, we have our own faults as a church, as a body, as a fellowship here. We have our faults. We have our shortcomings. We have our failures. We try really hard, hopefully, all of us, not just the staff, but, but hopefully all of us, as these living stones, as a spiritual house, to build each other up for the growth and the edification of the body. But we still fall short. We still say things and do things to each other that we shouldn't do. And if someone were to come and judge us based just on the shortcomings and the failures, how far would we get? Those are the people that trust in their own righteousness. It was the Pharisees. It was trusting in religion. And, and there was a time, <laughs> there was a time, I'll be honest, when I was younger, that I would get into this idea that if it wasn't Calvary Chapel, then it wasn't God. It wasn't Christian. And, and that was a terrible place to be, too, because there are some terrible things that go on in Calvary chapels. There are a lot of great things that go on in Calvary chapels, just like there are some terrible things that people in the body of Christ at large do. And there are a lot of amazing things that people in the body of Christ do. Because we are all still sinners. We need to really, really take that to heart and let that stay with us all the time. None of us has attained that. That, that place of perfection. And so he, he closes out this, this parable in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and vice versa. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's a promise. It's, it is a promise. Jesus is speaking here. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything that he says is true and just and right. And so when he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, that is a promise. That is a guarantee. That is truth. That is something that you can bank on. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And also everyone who humbles himself, who keeps that heart of humility before God, will be exalted. And so for us, that means that we need to stay humble and to let God exalt according to his plan and his will in his time and for his purposes. Not because it's a reward for us to, to somehow feel special. I mean, really, what more do we need to know that we're loved? I mean, we, we've been given the gift of eternal life. What more could we possibly want or expect? And yet he continues to pour out blessings upon us. We need to stay humble. And so in, in Luke 5, 27 through 32, when he's calling Matthew, he, he goes and he meets him where he's at. He says, after these things, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And we talked about what a tax collector did, about his life, his job, his example. 
of how much the other Jews hated the Jewish tax collectors. We also talked about the fact that they would charge so much more than what they actually needed, and so they were wealthy, and really what they'd done is they had stolen, but under the guise of being someone that works for the government, they had stolen the wealth of the people to make themselves rich. And so Jesus comes, and he sees him in the middle of doing this, and he tells him, follow me. And for Matthew, that was all it took. That was all it took. He just said, follow me. And that was enough for him. And he went and he followed. And you look at his life. You look at the the way that Jesus changed him. And the works that God did through him after that. Because he left all, he rose up and he followed him. And then he gave a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. In another passage in one of the other Gospels, you see that it was tax collectors and other sinners. So it was the people that were following him, and then it was Matthew, a bunch of tax collectors who everybody hated, and a bunch of other sinners who everybody looked down on. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, the the religious people, the people that were holy and righteous, and they, they were doing all the right things. They said all the right things. They went to all the right places. The outward was so clean and so pure. They came and they complained against the disciples of Jesus. They complained to them and they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You make yourself unholy. You make yourself unclean by what you're doing. And Jesus answered them. So they came and they talked to the disciples, but Jesus heard them and he knew their hearts, is what it says in one of the other gospels. He knew their hearts. And he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have that same responsibility, that mission, Jesus wasn't out there hanging out with these people just to kill time, just because he needed a place to eat. He could have picked anywhere. He could have gone anywhere, done anything that he wanted. So he wasn't just hanging out with anybody. You go through the Gospels, there's not a single thing that happened by happenstance. Everything was preordained. It was for a purpose. There was some person that needed to be ministered to in all those places. You go through the book of John, and that's one of the reasons that that I really, really enjoy going through the book of John, is because of the interpersonal relationships of all the people that Jesus spoke to that he, by all intents, should not have. If he really wanted to be a good Jew, a religious Jew, there were a lot of people that he talked to and a lot of people that he touched that he never should have had any business being anywhere near. But that was where the sick and the dying were. And so that's where he knew he needed to be. And so that's the example. But Jesus wasn't just hanging out to kill time. He was leading them to repentance by both his words and his example. We can't isolate ourselves, but we also can't lose sight of the mission that we've been given. You know, we, we, in the body of Christ, people overcorrect in both directions. On the one side, well, I can't do anything with a non-believer. I can't be in their presence. You know, I can't work for a non-believer. I can't work with a non-believer. I can't hire a non-believer. I can't go to the grocery store with a non-believer. I can't be on a sports team with a non-believer. You know, if my family members, my extended family members are not believers, I can't spend holidays with them. And they go to that extreme. It's like cutting themselves off entirely from anyone that has not confessed to be a Christian. That is an overcorrection. I think that it's very, very clear by the example of Jesus, that is an overcorrection. The overcorrection on the other side is, well, we go hang out everywhere that they are. So, you know, I go minister in the bars and and in the strip clubs and, you know, at the drug house and, you know, I shoot up and and then we talk about Jesus and I tell him about how great it is. No, that's an overcorrection in the other way. You can't do that. You have to be an example everywhere that you go. But you do have to go out and to be an example. How else can people see the light if all they see is the darkness? How else are people going to see the light if all they see is the darkness? That's what we talk about, that others would be able to see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That you don't hide a, a lamp under a bushel basket. But that you set it up top 
so that it can bring light to the whole room. That's what we've been called to do, to go out into this dark room that is the world and to be the light, to be an example in it, but to be out there for a purpose. Not to be out there just killing time, just, just kicking stones and, and waiting until Jesus comes back. No, we're, we're out there for a purpose. We've been given this mission to go out and to do things. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, we see a, a certain ruler, a rich man. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that is a question that so many people in the world have. What do I have to do to, to have eternal life? Because the people that are starting to get an understanding and they know that there's something beyond this life and they know that they don't have the answer, they're looking for somebody that can tell them what the answer is. And so this man comes and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And so he didn't run down the whole list, but he gave him some of the big ones, some of the highlights, if you will. And in verse 21, the man said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Seriously. Seriously. This guy really, he's, he obviously doesn't know who he's talking to, okay? Because there is no way... No way possible that this man has kept even those things since his youth. There's just no way possible. But notice the answer that Jesus gave him. Jesus could have very easily run down the list with him and said, what about last week and last month and when you were five and when you were seven and all the things that you said, and all the things that you thought in your heart, Jesus could have run down the list for him. But notice his answer. When Jesus heard these things in verse 22, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. So people love to, to take the easy way out. And one of the easy way outs, honestly, is to be able to work your way into heaven. And that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but stop and think about it. Wouldn't it be so much easier to work your way into heaven if you just had this, this, this tab that you said, God said, hey, look, I'm going to let you have this divine inspiration tab. And, and whenever you open, let's make it even easier. It's an app. I am going to put an app on your phone and you can keep track. And I, every time that, that I have to ding you, I'll, I'll knock it down a little bit. And as long as you stay above this line, you can get to heaven. I mean, think about how how easy that would be in so many ways. Because you know, if you're, you were dipping a little bit below the, the eternity line, then you just have to do a couple of good things and get yourself back up to, to a right standing. That would be a lot easier than having to be perfect, right? It would be a whole lot easier. It's harder to be a Christian. It's harder to try to live like Jesus. But there's a reason. It's because we are an example to others. And because he's trying to keep us on the straight and narrow. But we like to look for the easy way out. And so that's what this guy was doing. He asked him, what, what do I have to do? Just, just lay it out for me. Tell me the things so that I can go do them. But Jesus knew this man's heart. And he didn't even bother arguing with him about his perfection, about his self-righteousness. This man was a sinner just like the rest of us, but Jesus knew that the answer the man needed, the thing that he needed to hear, was not an argument over his sin, his wealth of sin, I'm sure. It was the one thing that he held too much of. The one sin, the one thing that, that was just so dominant in his life. And that was the one thing that Jesus wanted to speak to. Not that the other things didn't matter, but that, that one thing, he cut straight to the chase. And so we need to learn from the example that Jesus gave here and recognize that ministering both to believers as we are encouraging, as we are iron sharpens iron, as we're building each other up, and also to non-believers as we are witnessing and sharing the gospel with them, that ministering inside and outside the body of Christ is not a one-size-fits-all type of a thing. Ministering is not a one-size-fits-all type of a thing. I, I'm not saying that it is not a good thing to go to a class on how to witness 
or how to share a testimony or to listen to other people's testimonies or to watch other people witness and then get some cues. But the more important person to find out how to witness from is the Holy Spirit. Because again, I can't change a heart. I can't even change a mind. I just have to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do that. Ministering is not a one-size-fits-all thing. We have to lean on the Holy Spirit and ask Him to lead us and to guide us, to give us the words to speak, because when it all comes down to it, God is the one that is moving in that person's heart. We can't change hearts. We can be used to change hearts, though. But riches can be a hindrance. Riches can be a huge hindrance. In verse 24, he continues, he says, When Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say how impossible it is. He didn't say that no man or woman who is rich can enter the kingdom of God. He said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? I remember being a kid and and reading through that part of, of the gospel and thinking, man, how cool. They probably got to see a camel go through the eye of a needle. And because as a child, you read it and you, you like, all things are possible. It's God. It's Jesus. Jesus said it, this was what it would have to be. Well, then Jesus could make it happen. And that's the childlike faith that we're supposed to have. That it's not impossible because in verse 27, they, they had just finished saying, who then can be saved? And in verse 27, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. God could do it. I mean, think about, seriously, think about how cool that would be. You know, you, you see all the, the effects that you have in movies and TV shows nowadays, but how awesome that would be to to stand next to a camel, and to watch God put him through a, the eye of a needle. None of you guys seem as interested in that as I am. I think that would be amazing. I mean, just to be able to see that. And, and it would be one of those things like when, when they come and, and Jesus says to the paralytic man, your sins are, or yeah, your sins are forgiven. And they say, well, who are you to forgive sins? And he says, just to let you know that I have the power to forgive sins here on the earth, rise up and walk. And then the paralytic rises up and walks and everybody's jaw probably dropped. That's the kind of thing it is because all of these things should be impossible. And yet with God, all things are possible. Jesus didn't say that it was impossible. He said it was hard. The reality is that he could do it if he chose to. And in the same way, he makes other impossible things happen just like what he does in the life of Zacchaeus. And if you can believe it, all of this was just to get us to Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So he wasn't just a tax collector. He was a tax collector that had other people working for him as tax collectors. And so he was very rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And so this is a very, very rich man. This is someone that, that other people may not have respected, but they definitely respected his authority and they respected his riches. There were, this was a man that because he was so rich, and this was a, a, an area, Jericho, Jericho was an area that was, you know, like the place to be. This was a, a, like a vacation hotspot. This is where all the money was. And so if he was a tax collector in Jericho, he was making a good living. As a tax collector of tax collectors, he was extremely wealthy. This was a man that didn't have to run anywhere, probably didn't have to do anything for himself. He probably had servants to do everything for him. This is the man that goes out and he wants to see Jesus. There's something going on in his heart and in his life already that he wants to go see who Jesus was. But he could not because of the crowd because he was so short. So he ran ahead. 
That's already completely out of character for somebody that was this wealthy to run out ahead. But then he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. Think about that. That would be nowadays like seeing someone in a thousand dollar suit climbing up into a tree. Like that's just not what happens. People like that don't do that. They would pay somebody to bring this man to them. But he had such a desire just to see Jesus. He's not even, we're not even talking about getting up close to him. We're not talking about touching him. We're not talking about actually speaking to him. Just talking about being able to get near enough to see him. And he climbs up into a tree just so that he can see as he passes that way. And so in verse 5 it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And that is so awesome. It is a reminder, a simple reminder, but a a powerful reminder that Jesus knows everything that's going on in our lives. Jesus knew exactly where he was. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and said to him, and he spoke directly to him. And that is the God that we serve. That is the God who we minister on behalf of, the God who knows everything. He knows every single heart. He knows every situation. He knows every hurt, every pain. He knows every heart that is ready to be given to him. And he's just asking us to be faithful. He's asking us to be faithful. He's done the heavy lifting. He already has prepared the good works beforehand for us to walk in them, as Paul writes. He's already done the heavy lifting. He's just asking us to be faithful. Because God knows every heart. I can't tell you how many times I have tried to go out and to do something in my own ability, my own knowledge of the Bible or my own knowledge of this person's life or my own whatever kind of counseling knowledge I think I might have, whatever it is that I go and I, and I feel like I can speak into their life. And so I, I just want to minister to them and, and it's with a good intent, wanting to bring them to know Jesus Christ wanting to get them on the straight and narrow, wanting to to have them as a brother or sister in Christ and just failing miserably. Not a single thing that I said seemed to hit the mark. There was not a single thing that that I said or did that made any kind of a difference at all in their lives. And then just feeling like it was a total failure, like a total waste of time. And the simplicity of an emergency prayer, if you will. God, I, I don't know what... What's wrong? But just give me words. And then it, it's something random. Something random that, that just God puts it in your, in your mind to say. And, and you, you say it. You've tried all of these things. You, you've shared the wisdom of, of, of theology. And you've gone through eschatology. And, and you've used all of this stuff. And, and you've, you've torn down every argument that they had. In your mind, you thought you did. And nothing worked. And then it was just something as as simple as, you know, Jesus loves you, bro. And then all of a sudden, just tears. And just this person is shattered. And they're a broken mess. And and they just, that was the one thing. That was the one thing. And that's, I think, the best way to look at it. That every person out there, there is one thing that they need to hear. One thing. I don't know what that one thing is. Obviously, it all comes back to Jesus. But what is that one path into that person's heart that Jesus has already prepared? That the Holy Spirit has just been waiting on you to ask, just, just give me wisdom. That one inroad, that one thing. That, that's all it's going to take. That, that you could speak until you're blue in the face and then you just say that one thing and the floodgate opens. And this life is changed. They become a, a child of God. They grow. They, they become a disciple. And it was all because we were faithful to get past our own self-righteousness and just to ask God, just give me that one thing. Give me that one thing that you want them to hear. That one thing that you have prepared their heart, that others have come and they've watered and they've done all of this stuff, that you have done all the heavy lifting, God, and you're just waiting 
for that child of yours to be faithful and willing to surrender in humility and say, use me. Give me that one thing to say. And then God does it. He saw Zacchaeus. He looked up, he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so Zacchaeus did. He, he called to, to Matthew. He said, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew did. He got up and he followed him. It was the one thing. He said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus did. He made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. That was the one thing. The one thing that Zacchaeus needed to hear was, I must stay at your house. That was the one thing. And then verse 7, but when they saw it, there's always a they. Did you hear what they said? Well, they always say, well, who is they? They, whenever we start talking about they, it's usually a bad thing. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And that's the problem in many cases with us as a body, that we look at the work that God is doing in people and we say, as they do, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Well, so-and-so's walk isn't far enough along. So-and-so's not growing fast enough. So-and-so doesn't show the, the fruits of repentance in their life. Even though I don't know them and I see them for five minutes at church, I, just, I can tell that the fruits of repentance aren't in their life. Who are we? Who are we to judge that? Yes, if you have more of a relationship with somebody, then yeah, you need to start looking for fruit and you need to see changes in each other's lives. But the people that we don't really know, who are we to judge them? We need to pray for them. Pray for us, for the, the piece of lumber in our own eye before the speck in our brothers. But we need to pray for them and ask that God would give us insight. So in verse 8, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Now I guarantee you that Zacchaeus did not leave that day and never sin again. That's not the way that, that this life ends. It's not the way the story goes. But Zacchaeus recognized that there were some serious shortcomings in his life, and he began to immediately take steps to make amends, to change. doesn't mean that he was perfect. It doesn't mean that, that from that point forward that, that everybody that knew Zacchaeus knew that Zacchaeus was a godly, righteous man. We don't see that. We don't know that. But he began to make amends. And Jesus said to him in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what? to seek and to save that which was lost. That is our responsibility. That is our calling, to seek and to save that which was lost. To take Jesus out to where the emergencies are. Not to just wait until somebody walks in the doors of a church. Sometimes we, we get too complacent as a body of Christ that we just want to nitpick at the other believers that that are inside the body or that we want to nitpick at people that maybe may or may not even be believers, but they come to a church. We don't want to get our hands dirty and go out and witness in the world. And the places that, that our lives naturally take us, that, that God has already preordained for us. Think about that for a second. Everywhere that you go has been preordained by God. Everywhere that you go, God knows every single thing, every single place, every single person, every single interaction. And how, look at the life of Jesus. We talked about that when Jesus would go out, everywhere that he went, every delay that he had, every out-of-the-way place that he went to, to get to some other place that he was going, every single one was for a purpose. It was to speak to somebody. Everything was for a purpose. Now, relate that to our lives. Everywhere that we go, the jobs that we have, the families that we have, the schools that we attend, the friends that we have, the, the grocery store, the, the car accident that you get into, the doctor or the nurse, 
that treats you when you have to go, go in for a checkup or whatever it is. That every single one of those is a divine appointment. Every single one. We don't know what the appointment was for. But God does, and he's waiting for us to ask, God, give me an opportunity to be a light in this person's life. Give me an opportunity to share your love with this person. Give me an opportunity to have that one thing, that one interaction, just to be a part of seeing somebody come to know you. Think about what a difference each one of us could make. if We were only willing to look at everything in this life as a divine appointment. Think about the difference that other people's lives would have. Think about the changes in this world. Think about the changes in this nation, all the junk that's gone on over the last year, two years, four years, eight years, 12 years. Things are not getting better. And I would suggest to you that part of it is our fault because we are not looking at things as divine appointments, as opportunities to be used for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get so caught up in ourselves that we miss the Zacchaeus that's sitting up in a tree that's just looking for Jesus, just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And maybe that glimpse that they needed was to be able to see Jesus in you or me. Think about it as a divine appointment. Your life is filled with divine appointments. If you've given yourself over to Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God today, you are full of divine appointments. Be active about that. Amen?